0: The push today by the religious right to remove so many books from schools and libraries has many parallels throughout history, stretching much further back in time than any curriculum controversy I've previously discussed. While Nazis are known for their burning of books, their actions, at least in this regard, are likely dwarfed by those of the Catholic Church whose history of inspecting libraries, removing offending literature, and banning and burning books is unparalleled. In 1966, Pope Paul VI discontinued a long-standing and frequently updated list of authors and works that were forbidden by the Catholic Church. This Index Liberorum Prohibitorum included the names of many playwrights, novelists, philosophers, and theologians, specifically any whose works were deemed morally objectionable or heretical. This index and others like it have a long history, going all the way back to the Inquisition, when many of the works included in their earliest versions were more magical in nature. Many of the books banned by the Spanish inquisitor Fernando de Valdez y Salas in 1559, for example, were books believed to be instruction manuals for the practice of black magic. Grimoires, they were called. Among the most popular of these magic handbooks was one attributed to the biblical King Solomon, the son of King David thought to have reigned in ancient Israel sometime between 970 and 920 BCE. Indeed, there have been numerous books of magic attributed to King Solomon, each with a variety of different names, some said to be separate works and others believed to be variations of the same. In the 17th century, a book called The Secrets of Solomon was seized by the Venetian Inquisition and said to be a handbook for practicing witches. This may have been a version of the *Lemegiton Clavicula Salomonis*, the Lesser Key of Solomon, thought to have been authored in the 1600s, or it may have been a version of an earlier work which inspired the Lesser Key, Clavicula Salomonis*, the Greater Key of Solomon. This work appears to have been authored not in antiquity, but during the Italian Renaissance in the 14th or 15th centuries. Certainly earlier pseudepigraphal works had inspired this one as well, such as the Hygromantia or Magical Treatise of Solomon, which may date back even to the 13th century. Some version of this book under the name the Book of Solomon is said to have been ordered by Pope Innocent VI to be burned during the 1300s. The various versions of the Keys of Solomon provide instructions for the practitioner of magic, directing them in purification rituals and how to prepare the tools they will require. They collect incantations like recipes, demonstrating how to cast spells that invoke rain, conjure gold coins, make oneself invisible, instill love, and curse enemies. And perhaps most offensive to the church They name and describe many demons and teach the magician how to summon them and how to compel them to do their bidding. The question this begs is not why the church would ban such literature, but how the figure of Solomon, presented in the Bible as a wise and holy king, favored by the Judeo-Christian God above all other men, came to be associated with black magic. This is Historical Blindness. I'm Nathaniel Lloyd. And once again, I return to the ancient volumes of the Encyclopedia Grimoria to better understand the mythology of magic. Under S, we find the key to the secrets of King Solomon. Before the episode, I want to thank my newest patrons Eric Shafrik, LB, Sarah Meehan, and Bavik Patel. I really appreciate all my patrons. If you pledge on Patreon, you can get ad-free and exclusive episodes. I always release one episode a month, at the very least, but I always try to release something exclusive between each episode. For example, after my episode on KGB AIDS disinformation. I released the full interview with expert Dr. Douglas Selvage, which was more than an hour long. And after my episode on the Ark of the Covenant, I released a mini-sode talking about the different ideas about what the Ark actually was. Patron feeds also get episodes early. And, as you should know by now, they get an ad-free feed not interrupted by advertisements or Patreon pitches like this. So visit patreon.com slash historicalblindness and support the show. Or you can support the show by making a one-time donation at historicalblindness.com/donate or at the PayPal link in the show notes or on Venmo at historicalblindness. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to Historical Blindness. According to the lore of magic, King Solomon was not only a master magician, he was the originator of some magics. Just as Zoroaster is viewed as the first magus and inventor of astrology, and Hermes Trismegistus the first alchemist, King Solomon is thought of as the originator of more than one form of magic, such as Ars Notoria, the magical art of supernaturally achieving knowledge, and perhaps more importantly, Ars Goetia, the ritual magic used to summon and bind demons and thus obtain favors from them. As we will see though, much like those of Zoroaster and Hermes Trismegistus, the legend of King Solomon's contributions to magic prove impossible to credit upon closer examination. This should be apparent even at the outset, as we see the legend evolve into folklore about King Solomon that rivals even the most fantastical of fairy tales. Anyone who attended Sunday school knows that the wisdom of King Solomon is legendary, and we already know that he is associated with many magical artifacts, for he had possession of the Ark of the Covenant for which he built a permanent temple in Jerusalem. But according to the magical myth of Solomon, which developed out of numerous traditions in multiple cultures, God granted him supernatural wisdom, like a superpower, including even the ability to talk with animals and to command spirits. From angels, he received four magical stones, one that gave him power over the animal kingdom one that empowered him to move heaven and earth, one that granted him dominion over all angels, and one that enabled him to bind even demons to his service. Like Thanos, he united these stones into a ring that made him the most powerful human of all time. He possessed also the Philosopher's Stone, It was believed by others and thus was able to create gold and riches. And with this great wealth and power, he built many wonders, forcing demons to complete the labor on his behalf. Not only did he build the Temple of Jerusalem in this manner, but also mythical constructions like the walled City of Copper, a vast and secret city built to contain all his treasures and books of arcane wisdom. Even if the city were ever found, as it is said has happened before, no mortal man can penetrate its walls without dying of laughter. How King Solomon himself might have visited this marvelous place is clear though, for like a tale out of the thousand and one Nights, he rode a flying carpet, carried aloft, either by the demons at his command or by the winds that he could tame, depending on what source you read. In total, he was an ancient superhero, and his legend would provide the background for quite the adventure story. But where does all this come from? As mentioned, those who only know Solomon from the Bible know him only as the wise king, a writer of songs, lauded for his clever judgment the builder of the first temple, arrayed in riches and luxuries, and known for his sexual escapades. Unsurprisingly, there is no biblical basis for these fanciful legends. But perhaps more surprisingly, there is little scriptural support for any claims of Solomonic magic. To find the origin of this pseudo-history, we must revisit these scriptures, the earliest of sources recording the life of Solomon, and trace the evolution of his legend from there. The books of the Bible that give us a portrait of Solomon are the first book of Kings and the second book of Chronicles. Additionally, the book of Proverbs is attributed to him, as is, of course, the Song of Solomon. The story told of Solomon in the Bible centers around his wisdom and his building of the temple, as well as his lusting after foreign women, like the Queen of Sheba. It is emphasized that his great sin was not so much his marrying of foreign women, but that he thereafter built temples for their foreign gods. This is given as the reason for the secession of the Northern tribes and the division of his kingdom into the kingdom of Judah ruled by his son Rehoboam after his death and the separate Northern kingdom of Israel, inhabitants of which would later be deported after its conquest, thereby creating the idea of the lost tribes of Israel, as I spoke about in my series on the subject. The image of Solomon in the Bible gives no indication of the esoteric magus he would later become, but there are present the seeds of the idea, which would later be developed through exegesis and adaptation to the values of future eras and cultures. For example, Solomon receives his wisdom in a divine vision during which he requests it of God. Already here we find the idea that he was gifted some supernatural faculties in a kind of celestial encounter, and it is easy to see how this would later be transformed into the fantasy tales I've already described. While millennia later this wisdom would be interpreted as arcane knowledge, in Kings and Chronicles it is very clearly the practical wisdom to be a just ruler, depicted in the stories of his judgments, such as the famous example when two women come to him, both claiming to be the mother of a certain child, and Solomon suggests cutting the child in half, simply to discern who the real mother is by their different reactions. But even these scriptures, the earliest records about Solomon, cannot be relied on as accurate historical portrayals as we already see a process of shaping his legend to suit the author's purposes, and the tendency to attribute to him works he did not write. Scholars agree that the book of Kings was not authored by the prophet Jeremiah, as tradition suggests, but rather was composed, compiled, and edited by the same authors as the books of Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Jeremiah during the Babylonian exile, hundreds of years after Solomon's reign. There is even analysis of kings that suggests it was redacted from some unknown source material, edited to depict Solomon as a kind of idealized, universal king of all humanity, but also to emphasize his sin and blame him for the division of the kingdom. Likewise, the Book of Chronicles is believed to have been written by a single person even later, post-exile, during the Achaemenid Empire, after Cyrus the Great liberated the Hebrews and allowed them to return to Jerusalem and rebuild. This author presents an even more mundane version of Solomon, idealizing him as the best of Jewish kings, but not so much as the perfect king of kings. As for the Book of Proverbs, which appears to display the preternatural wisdom of Solomon and Song of Solomon, also called Song of Songs, which is basically an erotic poem that demonstrates Solomon's lustful nature, debate rages regarding whether these were unified works or collections, with most scholars agreeing that they are certainly later pseudepigraphal works attributed to Solomon. Thus, even in the Bible, among the very first pieces of writing related to Solomon, we already see him being credited with writing things he did not write. This rewriting of Solomon's life continued in the post-exilic Second Temple period, when much quote-unquote para-biblical literature was produced that adapted the history and lessons of the bible for hellenistic sensibilities as the known world came under the influence of ancient greece works such as the wisdom of ben sira Eupolymus's work concerning the kings of judea and of course flavius josephus's jewish antiquities again emphasized the wisdom of solomon but in a more hellenized sense This wisdom is conceived of not just as practical political skill but also as a knowledge of physical sciences and of divine and philosophical truths. We must remember that the Hellenized world was the hotbed from which emerged all the lore about the beginnings of magic. I traced the claims about Zoroaster's invention of magic to the Hellenized Ptolemaic Kingdom of Egypt and I further traced the lore of alchemy to the syncretistic transformation of the Egyptian god Thoth into the Greek figure of Hermes Trismegistus during the Hellenistic period. Likewise, in Second Temple literature and Hellenistic culture, the figure of Solomon was transformed into a kind of hermetic sage. This reinterpretation of his character reflects the philosophical milieu of the late Hellenistic period, the 1st century BCE, and beyond. It can be seen in the aforementioned work of Josephus, as well as in the deuterocanonical Book of Wisdom, also called the Wisdom of Solomon. Again, deuterocanonical means this work is part of Catholic and Eastern Orthodox canon, but tends to be viewed as apocryphal by Protestants. In it, Solomon is not only wise, he is also a teacher of wisdom, a revealer of secrets. The secrets to which he is privy are those of the structure and elements of the earth and the heavens. We see here the root of later tales, in that he bears knowledge regarding the nature of animals and how to tame them, as well as sorcery in that he understands all there is to know about plants and what can be done with them. Thus, in the wisdom of Solomon, and also in Jewish antiquities, he is depicted as a master of occult knowledge and specifically two areas of knowledge. Astronomy, which would further link him to the magical art of astrology, and demonic exorcism, which would contribute to the tales of his power to bend all spirits to his will. Now for a brief intermission. What really happened on the unsinkable Titanic? What made the 1904 St. Louis Marathon the strangest event in Olympic history? Whatever became of missing boy Bobby Dunbar? And who was the child who returned in his place? If these questions interest you, check out the History Uncovered podcast brought to you by the digital publisher of All That's Interesting. History Uncovered explores the strange and obscure parts of history that you definitely didn't learn about in school. Hosted by the writers and editors of All That's Interesting, the show covers a wide variety of topics, ranging from the forgotten media spectacle of cave explorer Floyd Collins' death to the disappearance and possible cannibalization of Michael Rockefeller to the true story that inspired The Exorcist. With more than 100 episodes, you're bound to find that they've covered a topic that's especially interesting to you. And each month, they produce a special History Happy Hour episode, examining recent news in the fields of world history and archaeology, and commemorating important historical anniversaries. Come explore the uncharted corners of the natural world and the world past by listening to History Uncovered, wherever you get your podcasts. the 1st century BCE author of The Wisdom of Solomon and Flavius Josephus, writing about a 100 years later in the Common Era, were presenting reinterpretations of Solomon that were entirely extra-biblical. However, they were likely deriving their portraits of the king from Jewish traditions that had developed during the Second Temple period, especially among Jews in Hellenized Egypt. The portrait of Solomon as a powerful exorcist certainly goes hand in hand with the portrait of him as being endowed with esoteric knowledge like a hermetic sage, as his power over demons was said to come from his knowledge of their nature and their names. However, there already existed some Jewish traditions connecting kingship with exorcism in the story of Solomon's father, David, who in the book of Samuel soothed an evil spirit in King Saul by playing his harp thereby setting him on the path to succeed the king. This was likely not the only source of the depiction of Solomon as an exorcist, though. In part, it must have been derived from the tendency in Hellenistic culture to portray kings as divine and capable of performing miracles, and in even larger part, it represents a syncretism of ideas that were very popular in the Hellenized world regarding the hierarchies of demonology and angelology. In short, it just made sense, if Solomon was a great king endowed with divine wisdom, that he be a demonologist and be capable of performing the miracle of exorcism. The oldest Second Temple literature portraying Solomon as an exorcist was not found until modern times in a cave in Qumran. These apocryphal psalms, which date to between 50 and 70 CE, read somewhat like instructions for casting out demons and talk of Solomon invoking the name of God and asking the name of the demon in order to command it. A few decades later, in the 90s of the first century CE, Josephus included in his Jewish antiquities an account of an exorcism performed by a man named Eleazar, who cast out demons in the name of Solomon, speaking incantations the text says were written by Solomon, and pressing a ring said to bear the seal of Solomon to the possessed man's nose. Clearly, by this point, the exorcism rituals attributed to Solomon had become a kind of folk healing remedy, and his name and seal in apotropaic protection against evil spirits. Interestingly, we see here a ring, though not the magical ring gifted by angels to endow Solomon with power over all things. Rather, it seems perhaps many such rings may have been made and used in such rituals, their power thought to derive from the quote-unquote seal engraved on it. Here we find the myth of Solomon's ring and his power over demons in its infancy. Over the following centuries, many apotropaic amulets would be inscribed with the names of demons following the Solomonic exorcism ritual and would even claim to bear the seal given to Solomon to ward off demons. Sometime after the first century CE, likely in the period of late antiquity between the third and sixth centuries, we find this legend fully formed in the fragments later collected in the Middle Ages as the pseudepigraphal work called the Testament of Solomon, which not only has him wielding his magic ring, but also compiles an entire demonology with the names of each offending spirit, the nature of their activities, and specific prescriptions for exercising them. Present in the demonologies later attributed to Solomon are also some elements of astrology, identifying spirits with certain heavenly bodies. While incantations and seals for warding against and exorcising demons certainly was a kind of miracle and magic and would develop through the centuries to be represented as a different kind of magic, the binding and commanding of spirits to do one's will, it may seem rather less occult today, since priests still claim to cast demons out of people. Such is the case as well with astrology a kind of divination magic which as we discussed in my previous volume in this series on zoroaster was thought to be one of the oldest forms of magic invented by the magi from whom we derive the word for magic in the testament of solomon the view of solomon as astrologer is definitely present In it, he refers to planets and their identification with demons, and he even refers to the signs of the zodiac. The tradition is further developed in the Hygromantia or Magical Treatise of Solomon, a work that appears to bridge the hermetic sage and exorcist Solomon of late antiquity with the all-out sorcerer and alchemist Solomon of the late Middle Ages and Renaissance. In some ways, this portrayal of Solomon also has its roots in the Bible, as in 1 Kings 5.10, it is claimed that, quote, Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt, end quote. As Midrashic commentaries have emphasized, the wisdom of the East and Egypt was astrological in nature, So it would only make sense then that Solomon's surpassing wisdom also partook of this kind of divination and augury. And in the magical treatise, we can even find evidence of the further evolution of this depiction of Solomon as Magus. The Hygromantia is a Greek work, but portions of it appear to have Italian influence and to have been added later in the early Middle Ages. In these sections... Solomon is not only a practitioner of astrology, but also of other forms of magic, such as hydromancy, the summoning of demons in a water basin to create a kind of crystal ball that would show him things he desired to see. Here we have the notion of his control of demons that had evolved from the view of Solomon as exorcist combined with a form of divination evolved from the view of Solomon as astrologer, syncretized in such a way that we see Solomon compelling demons to do him favors. Thus, the image of Solomon, the commander of demons, master of Ars Goetia, is forged. Since, by the Middle Ages, Solomon had already picked up these extra-biblical magical trappings, like a snowball gathering mass as it rolls downhill, growing from a wise king and builder to a magician endowed with a magical ring that allows him to bend spirits to his will, it is unsurprising that medieval alchemists and Renaissance magicians, many of them Christian, focused on Solomon as the originator of some of their esoteric beliefs and even attributed new works on magic to him. In Hellenistic Egypt, the alchemists and writers who immortalized alchemical lore looked not just to the mythological figure of Hermes Trismegistus as the progenitor of their art, but also to biblical figures. They were very familiar with the Greek translation of the Bible and as their hermetic perspective taught them to seek mystery and symbolism in everything, they looked to the scriptures, seeing in the Genesis narrative of creation an analogue for their great work of transmuting base metals into gold. They even went so far as to write the protagonist of their mythos, Hermes Trismegistus, into the lineage of antediluvian heroes, claiming he was a grandson of Noah who preserved the ancient knowledge of alchemy revealed to mankind. This adaptation of the Bible to suit the purposes of alchemists began in Alexandria toward the end of the third century CE and into the beginning of the next by Zosimos of Panopolis, a Gnostic mystic and alchemist who invented entire traditions in his prolific writings which survive only in fragments today. Zosimos combined hermetic ideas with the Gnostic view prevalent during the time that the secrets of the universe, including alchemy, had been shared with humanity by the fallen angels who lay with human women mentioned in Genesis as well as various Apocrypha. If you want to learn more about Gnosticism, listen to my episode, Gnostic Genesis and for more on the wild traditions about these fallen angels, find my two-part series, No Bones About It, on giants, as well as my episode on The Secrets of Enoch. Much of what we know of Gnostic tradition comes from the Nag Hammadi Library, a trove of ancient codices whose discovery rivals that of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and some of the demonological and astrological material that has been attributed to Solomon seems to have been echoed in or even have been derived from these Gnostic traditions about the spiritual forces in the world and their identification with certain planets. Thus, already in Zosimos' time, the traditions surrounding Solomon were being incorporated into new belief structures. The writings of Zosimos who combined Christian Gnosticism with Hermeticism and sought to tie the practices of alchemy to the Old Testament, talk of Solomon binding demons, not with a ring or a seal, or even in a water basin, but in sealed bottles that he specially made on instructions from angels by mixing silver, copper, gold, and a mystery metal called orichalcum into a magical kind of electrum alloy. Thus, Zosimos takes the myth of Solomon the Demon Binder and turns him into an ancient alchemist. He even, in one work, refers to some supposedly ancient and conveniently lost book purportedly written by Solomon that is said to have detailed the many uses of quicksilver. As the legend of Solomon grew among alchemists, they saw meaning in every part of his story. His songs, they said, must have been incantations, and he must, they reasoned, have had possession of the philosopher's stone, for only that could explain how rich in gold he was said to have been. So, scouring the scriptures, they fell on a verse in 1 Chronicles that talks of King David collecting wealth for the future temple Solomon was to build, which mentions, quote, all sorts of precious stones, end quote, whose original Hebrew referred to, quote, stones of puk, end quote, a term whose true meaning has been lost to time. And they said that was the philosopher's stone. Alternatively, some looked at first kings, which tells of the queen of Sheba gifting him jewels or precious stones and they invented an entire story about Solomon recognizing the Philosopher's Stone among the jewels. Regardless of what version of this story they believed, the idea stuck. Solomon was not just a wise king, not just a sage mystic, not just an exorcist, not only a diviner. He was among the most powerful of wizards, an ancient practitioner of alchemy. And if you wanted the grimoire you were writing to be taken seriously and be copied down through the centuries, you might just want to slap his name on it. The legend of King Solomon and his place in the vast myth complex about magic is a truly global phenomenon. It had its beginnings in ancient Israel, with what must have been a real man, and his memory was edited and redacted for political and cultural purposes in the Second Temple period. Thereafter, with the Greek influence on the Hellenized world, his legend continued to evolve and to incorporate new views of wisdom and kingship along the way, until he came to be viewed as a kind of esoteric guru like Hermes Trismegistus, and an astrologer like the ancient Zoroaster, and an exorcist like another great sage of the era, Jesus Christ. Indeed, the connections between Christ and these depictions of Solomon are many. Both were exorcists, and both were teachers of sage wisdom. Indeed, both were called the Son of David, Solomon because he was literally the successor of David and fruit of his loins, and Christ because he was said to be of Davidic descent. Indeed, some apocryphal texts go further in identifying the two, such as the questions of Bartholomew, sometimes thought to be the lost gospel of Bartholomew, which describes Christ binding demons in fiery chains and torturing them and even name-dropping Solomon as he does so. It has led some scholars to question whether the development of Christian lore may not have borrowed from the emerging lore of King Solomon in an effort to legitimize Christ as a kind of new Solomon, King of the Jews and King of Kings. Certainly, the evolution of the Solomonic legend is a story of one tradition borrowing from another throughout time, resulting in a syncretistic amalgamation. Other figures that are suggested to have been amalgamated with King Solomon are the legendary Indian king, Vikramaditya, or the much-mythologized Greek philosopher, Apollonius of Tiana whose legend has also been suggested to be the true origin of the story of Jesus Christ, a theory sometimes called the Jesus Myth Theory, that I may have to explore in more depth in the future, perhaps in my annual Xmas episode. But the legend of Solomon does not belong to the Jews or even the Christians alone. Certainly the myth complex that depicted him as a mage and alchemist Proved quite popular among Jewish mystics and Christian alchemists in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. But from the hotbed of syncretism that was Hellenistic Egypt, his legend also spread to and was further developed in the Arab and Muslim world, where he was called Nabi Suleiman and was said to be master of their version of demons, the Jinn. Indeed, the entire notion of Solomon keeping demons in a bottle and forcing them to do his bidding may explain much about the development of stories featuring wish-granting genies kept in bottles. But as with all mythology about magic, it is nearly impossible to discern if one legend gave birth to others or was itself born of them. Thanks for listening to Historical Blindness. Once again, please support the podcast by taking the short listener questionnaire at surveymonkey.com slash r airwave or click on the link in the episode notes. Hopefully it's still available when this episode releases. And again, you can get 50% off of HelloFresh and free shipping by going to hellofresh.com historical50 and using the code HISTORICAL50. Those links are in the show notes. Check out the blog post for this episode, which should go up on historicalblindness.com sometime before the next episode for a transcript, related imagery, and links to further reading. Like my principal source, Solomon the Esoteric King, From King to Magus, Development of a Tradition, by Pablo Torrejano. As always, thanks go out to my partner patrons Diane Lane, Joe Escott, Sean Munger, Devlin Hoff, Michael Markham, Jessica Reeves, Fred from Colorado, Robin Naggett, Matteo M. Impey, Rebecca, Don Mundus, Eunice Allen Bradley, Juliet O'Connor, Jonathan Williams, Joshua Luddington, Logan Houlihan, Lily Powers, Lonnie Coffer, Ralph Fenn, Emma, Lee Holland, Christine Gundlach, and Kevin Osborne. Just as the legend of Solomon grew by oral tradition, so too I hope you are spreading the word about this podcast. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows, like The Ancient World and The History of Egypt podcast. Some music on this episode is by Kai Engel, licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Check out the show notes for a list of the tracks used. You can support the show by pledging on Patreon, or by donating on PayPal. Find those links in the show notes, or find me on Venmo at Historical Blindness. Until next time, remember, in the long history of the world, the tradition that magic was real may be the most popular of myths spanning all cultures and peoples. Even today, there are those who buy copies of the Key of Solomon from occult bookshops and think they're unlocking some ancient secrets when really they're just skimming some old balderdash and not really understanding half of it.